Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Parsha podcast. It's hard to believe we are already on Parshat Truma. We're deep in the book of Exodus, and I want to remind all of you that we tape these in advance. And unfortunately, as we're taping, taping, is that the term we even use anymore? As we're recording this podcast, unfortunately, our hostages are not home. The war continues, and it is our fervent prayer that by the time you're listening to this, our hostages will be safe and home and healing, and the war will be over. But just so you understand the context in which we're sharing this Torah. So I am privileged to be here with Rabbi Leon Morris, in addition to being the president of Pardes and a teacher with a lot of interesting things to say, he is also a friend. So we're thrilled to have you here. Leon, thank you. I'm thrilled to be back here, Tzvi. Fantastic. I don't know how many appearances you have to make before you get the free cap or free mug. I'll have to, I'll have to check <laughs> on that one. I want my Pardes Parsha podcast swag, yeah, I don't and think I you've want got, it now. You might have to do one more. Just putting that out okay. there for you. Okay, so here we are. And, you know, we're in one of those parshiot, I always imagine, and you would have the experience, shul or congregational rabbis like, "Uh uh-oh, what am I going to talk about now? Because here I come into a parsha that is rich in its description, the material description of this building of a tabernacle, a portable temple in the desert, which as you're about to expand for us, is there to be a place of residence for God. And of course, all the questions that emerge, I imagine for us as moderns, but any Western reader, you know, why does God need this physical structure? What's it meant to bring? Aren't we supposed to believe in a God that is everywhere, right? And didn't God go out of his way to prove that by acting in Egypt? And I'd say both the material element the idea of confining God, if that's a term, to space. And you're an interesting combination. I view you as both a deeply traditional and modern reader all at the same time. So I'm sort of wondering, what do you do with this when you encounter it? Well, I love this question of why build a house for God? Does God need a house? And I'm thinking about, first of all, what you said, God is too big. God is too abstract to be contained in space or in a space. And, you know, we're not the first ones to say that. Actually, King Solomon, Shlomo HaMelech, says this when he dedicates the temple, the next stage of a house for God, a permanent house for God in Jerusalem in 1 Kings. The prayer that Shlomo HaMelech says is he asks rhetorically, can God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heavens and the heaven of heavens cannot contain God, how much less so this house that I have built. And that's still our question. So I love this idea. There's a quote from the great American Jewish architect Louis Kahn who says, architecture is the reaching out for the truth. So what is the truth? that the Torah and Jewish history has embedded within this idea of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle. Especially with what you imply, the danger of thinking, well, if God is in place A, he's not in place B or place C. And 
apparently Shlomo Amalek was also worried about, was that the inference the Jewish people were going to make? Well, mm -hmm. God is here in our temple, but that means when I go back home to the Galil or I go back home to the Negev, God's not there because this isn't God's house. God's house is only in the temple. So apparently that tension is alive when you yeah. bring up this idea. And the tension's alive not just because of the question of location, but if God is contained in a building, in a structure, in a house, then that eliminates the possibility to find God and be actively in God's presence everywhere. And so I think part of what King Solomon's addressing and part of what I think all of those commentators who seek to address this are addressing is we're not looking for a religious life that mirrors, let's say, other cultures of the ancient Near East where you kind of serve the God in God's house and then you do whatever you want outside. You're not standing in God's presence. We're trying to put forward an idea that we're always in God's presence. So I think the first response that I'm drawn to in the commentators is that, no, God doesn't need this house. And we'll talk in a moment about the timing of this whole mitzvah of constructing a house for God. God doesn't need this house. We need God to have a house. And specifically, we need God to dwell among us so that if in, let's say, in the desert, we built this house for God in the center of our camp, then going back to Louis Kahn, what's the architecture telling us? What's the truth that it's embodying? That God needs to be at the center. God needs to be at the center of our lives. Abravanel takes this in a beautiful direction, and I want to share it. Abravanel is saying that we needed this as a reminder that God did not create the world and then just abandon it. We're not deists, that God continues to play a providential role in our lives. I'll just read it inside. Abravanel writes, this was commanded so that they would not think that God abandoned the earth and so that they would not be like the rest of the nations who reject the notion that God knows and directs details and meets out to humans according to their ways and rewards the fruits of their actions. So I love this idea. It's an easier idea, the first part of that for me, is that we need a reminder that God has not abandoned us. And there are times in our history, there are times in our current experience where individually and collectively where we might feel like we're on our own, and where is God? And so the Mishkan, the tabernacle, almost in a symbolic way, is kind of a monument to reinforce in our consciousness that God is with us. God has not abandoned us. And then Abravanel takes it theologically one step further, which is to say, to say that God is with us means God is actively involved in the human experience. Well, you know, it's funny because from the King Solomon text, it's like the problem is we're going to think that God is small. But it turns out we often have a problem with the idea that God is too big. Mm. God is mm. so vast and so big. 
how could that God actually care about the events that human beings are engaged in, right? It's so small. When you look at the whole cosmos, right? The God who made the cosmos is going to care whether it's Svi Hirschfeld uh, gossiped today, mm-hmm. right? Which, not, of course, I did. Not uh, even the heaven of heavens can contain God. Right. So if God is so vast and great, how could I ever imagine that God is actually here or amongst us? So I'm thinking that part of this solution is to like really build the idea in a very concrete way. God really is right here. As big and as great as God is, God is also willing to confine himself, if you will, mm. to a space because we're confined in a space. God is making a choice to be with us, not because he's small, but because he's that generous. I love that. And I think you use the word concrete, and I think part of what's going on here, and this leads us to the issue of the chronological timing, the chronology of the Torah here, part of the challenge here is what does it mean to worship an abstract God? And in a way, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and later the temple is a concession to the fact that it is very difficult for us to completely position ourselves in the world of the abstract. We need concrete things. We need concrete touch points. That's part of the power of ritual, is it's concrete. If we reduce every ritual action to, does God really care if we light candles or put on tefillin or wear tzitzit or whatever it is, it feels to me like not a particularly deep and helpful question. I think these are ways to make God's presence more concrete in our lives and for God to be more than an idea. And I think that's part of what's going on here. Well, you know what you're saying, and I imagine you're going to lean right into this, this idea of needing God to be concrete, right? We can't help but think a week or two from now when we're going to engage this issue of the golden calf and how the need for God's concreteness was an ongoing challenge for a Jewish people trying to embrace a monotheism of a God that was not concrete. And how does that play into what's happening here in this parsha? So already early on, we have Midrashim, like the Tanhuma, that say, no, 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 the chronology, the order of the parshiot, of the Torah portions, the order of the chapters here in the book of Exodus is not how it actually happened, that the sin of the golden calf came first, even though we read about that later in Kitisa, and then God conceded, God saw that, okay, you people need to serve something in the way that you serve this idol that you created with your own hands. So I'll put into play, I'll put into practice, I'll command you to offer that kind of service to me. That it's really a kind of sublimation of the desire to do concrete things like offering sacrifices. I'm going to make sure that it's channeled in the proper way. So Tanhuma says that's the actual order. It's the sin of the golden calf that came first, and then it was a concession 
to build the Mishkan. Now, Sforno has an interesting addition to that idea of the chronology, which is that the Mishkan is actually a compromise, that after the sin of the golden calf, God wanted to leave the world entirely. And so the compromise position was that God would be in just one place in this Mishkan or later in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, that's problematic for some of the reasons we were speaking about at the beginning, but it's it further develops this idea of how great our human desire is to have God dwelling among us. So you've brought us to a point, and I'm about to put you on the spot so you can get ready. You always do. Up. Yes, that's my job here. I feel in many ways you've set up this debate, which I identify as between Maimonides and Rabbi Yehuda Levi, but as you've pointed out, you can find in many other places, where the Maimonidean position is, it's all a concession. We're weak, we're frail, we can't manage an abstract God, we can't connect to it, it doesn't inspire us, we don't feel it. If God is so great and so distant, we don't feel like God is present with us, but it's a concession. Ultimately, Rambam would say we're meant to grow out of it. And then you have Rabbi Yudal Levi, who's prior to the Rambam, at least chronologically, would say, no, this is the best possible system. The divine pharmacist who created the world has told us these are the herbs that we need to take. You want to get close to God? The Mishkan is the way that you do it. Right. I know you're thinking if you're a philosopher or, or coming from a different angle that it's not abstract. It's not this. It's not going to be in your intellect. It's not going to be in this abstract God. You want to connect. The Mishkan represents the primary address or avenue for us to connect. So I guess when you read these two approaches, right? The idea this is a concession that we're meant to transcend in some way or no, this really is. As human beings and as Jews who want to worship God, this is a necessary, essential piece that we're never going to transcend. We're just going to learn how to use better and better. Where do you see yourself in those camps? I want to have my cake and eat it too. That's a very fair answer. Very I, Jewish answer. <laughs> I really do want both. I think on the level of you know, deep belief in terms of what do I think is true, I resonate more with Rambam on this. But I know that people can't live, I can't live with abstraction. And so I want to have opportunities to dip into the concrete, into the here and now. And I think we can experience these things on multiple levels. So I want to be, in the example that you're giving, I want to be bringing my sacrifices I want to be acting as though this connects me more deeply to God, even as on a philosophical level of truth, I know that this is a concession. So you're saying you want the head of Maimonides and the heart of Rabbi Yehuda Levi. Beautifully put, beautifully put. I think that's actually cheating. We're going to have to see what people uh, <laughs> listen, but I hear what you're saying, that basically if you have to articulate your theology as a set of belief statements, then Rambam appeals to you. But the way you're saying, if I understand you correctly, and I think I'm with you with that, the way I experience my religious life, my relationship with God, 
It's not in this abstract, rational belief statements, or even worse for Rambam, negative theology, all the things I can't say about God, but I want a living, breathing, real interaction. And for me, it can't just be abstract. It's got to be real in the world happening at this moment in, as you said, a very concrete way. It's right brain and left brain. You know, I want to have a space in my life for poetry, for abstract art, for aesthetics in general. And I don't want to be just about ideas and truth. So when you read these passages, and I'll even expand it outward, you read the descriptions of the sacrifices and everything that's going on. Do you feel distanced by it? Well, I've had for more than a decade, I've had a particular fascination to help myself and to help other Jews reclaim those texts about sacrifice and the temple and the temple service. I think it's too easy for us to read them and to brand them as primitive and outmoded. And I think they're is an important place in the Jewish imagination and in Jewish liturgy and our prayers to connect with those texts. Ultimately, I think, and here I'm drawing from the writings of Moshe Halbertal, I think it's about how strong the human desire is to give a gift and how strong our desire is to give a gift to God. And that's a beautiful impulse, and I want to lift that up. Also, I think as spirituality in general and Jewish spirituality as well becomes more and more about the individual, I love this model of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, and then of the temple, which is a communal experience, right? The whole nation is sustained because of these daily sacrifices. And everybody is looking, everybody's directing their face and their hearts toward Jerusalem and within Jerusalem toward the temple and within the temple toward the Holy of Holies, because there's a sense that we're all in this together. You know, it's interesting. I think people forget, as moderns, we assume the primary tension is have sacrifices in a temple or be in this abstract more philosophical mode. But in the biblical world, the tension was have a central place that we all go to and share as a nation, or the impulse is to have everybody have their own Kohen in their own altar in their own backyard and pick a nice spot the family's going to gather and do it that way, right? Why should I have to wait? If I don't live next door in Jerusalem, why should I have to wait to bring my sacrifices and travel that distance, you're really raising another critical point here. It's not just that God's going to have a house, but God's house is defined as being among the people, not among an individual and not even among a set of priests, but God is going to be with us as a sense of a national identity, which of course brings in the other tension of the particular relationship with the Jewish people have with God versus a universal, you know, human relationship with God. Mm. And I will dwell among them. Right. You know, not, not in the house. Not but... in, but among the people. Yes. So we're really pushing on two levels, or you are, I should say. I'm staying neutral as the host, right? That tabernacle both 
challenges us to engage or think about God in the most human of ways, in a physical way, in concrete gestures and concrete space, because that's where we live as human beings. We don't live in abstract space, mm. right? We live in concrete space. Our relationships with our family are not abstract. They are concrete. They're expressed every day in the millions of concrete gestures that happen back and forth. And on top of that, we are also acknowledging a relationship that is national and not just individual. I think somebody could hear that and say, okay, but this number of details, this is just like way too detailed about the construction of the Mishkan. And here I'm thinking of a beautiful essay by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Alav HaShalom, who wrote, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, you really want to build a nation? You want to take a group of slaves and turn them into a nation? Give them one big national project to rally around, and that will turn them into a nation. And I think that's part of where all of these details of the Mishkan have greater meaning for us. They're all about getting everybody behind this project. And when's the last time you can remember the entire Jewish people getting behind one single project, mm, right? Mm. Which brings me, of course, see, Leon, you shared some beautiful Torah, but of course, nobody escapes this room without the follow-up. And I can't help but draw the connection of the concreteness of a temple or the Mishkan, the concreteness of God being in physical space. And the Kuzari did this already, but you know where I'm headed. He draws an analogy between the temple and the land of Israel. Right. And I guess I want to put out to you now the question how does that connect for you? Do you experience the land of Israel as a uniquely holy space? Do you understand that as being central also to our relationship with God? And so, in other words, where do you go with that? How does that, especially because I think we're arguing about that among the Jewish people, where do you go with those ideas or concepts that are out there? Right. I think on this question, it's an excellent question. I'm very much influenced by the thought of Rabbi David Hartman, Allah HaShalom, that this is a holy place and a holy project because of the opportunities that it presents us with to apply Jewish values and Jewish teachings and to apply meets vote to a much wider area of life than anywhere else, that this becomes a kind of living laboratory for applying Torah in every area of life, whereas outside of the land of Israel, it's much more curtailed. And here we have to apply Judaism to everything from garbage collection to military service and military ethics to how we treat minority populations within our country, every sphere of life. And that's an amazing opportunity. That is an expansion of Torah. But let me push you then, because you know where this is going. So Uganda would have worked just as well. A Jewish state in Uganda with all those same opportunities of garbage collection and healthcare system and military and justice system, all informed by Jewish values, then Uganda would have worked just as well for this type of understanding of the importance of the state of Israel. Well, I think that the historical connection is powerful. And here I'm thinking about 
Chesterton's quote, and I'm paraphrasing, but we believe in a democracy of the dead, that our ancestors also factor into our lives and our decision-making, and that we don't base our lives solely on those who happen to merely be walking about. That's what he writes. It's mostly powerful because this is a project of rebuilding. This is a project of returning. This is a project of literally walking in the footsteps of our ancestors. And so that makes this work on top of what I shared, you know, in terms of like David Hartman's theology, in addition to just having the opportunity to apply Judaism so much more widely, I'm doing so on the soil that is our historic homeland. You know, I feel for myself in terms of where I am, your previous piece gave me permission now to be Maimonides in my head and Rabbi Yudha Levi in my heart. And that I think the Maimonidean answer would be your answer. The state of Israel is a platform. The Jewish people, he says, in exile are under foreign influences. We don't control our own lives, so we can't live the lives of tzedek and mishpat that we want to live and create. We need our own place for that. And it just so happens historically, this is the place that Avram received. And of course, Rabbi Yehuda Levi and the more mystical approach is, and his famous analogy of the vineyard, this is the unique soil. Right, This is the unique spiritual soil. It can't happen anywhere else, or as Nachmanides would say, our relationship with God is unique in this place. And I've often felt like, I don't know how to live with both those concepts, but you gave me either permission or a structure that I can intellectually grasp one way of thinking about it. But the experience I have and how I am moved at different moments in time being here specifically and feeling something in the soil, it's okay to have that too, even though it's not in line with what my abstract rational beliefs would tell me. And I would have to say that on an experiential level, I've had that as well. And I have that. Uh, I certainly had that in terms of before I made Aliyah of visiting Israel. And occasionally I still have that here. Yeah, it's hard once you start paying taxes to have that uh, <laughs> that feeling here. That can often get in the way. But I really appreciate that what you've done is sort of this idea in a way that the Torah itself invites us to engage God on these multiple levels. Mm. It doesn't force us to choose. To choose. We don't have to choose. That we can engage God as the abstract dweller of the heavens, right? Distant from us and his view and engagement with the entire universe. But we also are given permission to believe that God is actually watching and concerned and engaged and sees how I live and gives me this opportunity to bring him a gift and repair my relationship when I've sinned by bringing a different gift. And it's this relationship that's happening in real time and in real space, and I don't have to choose. I'm given permission to live in both at the same time. That's what you've done here, Leon. Congratulations. You've given us all a tremendous gift. So thanks for inspiring it. So Sweet. what would you say now? People are listening. And of course, things that are happening here are very challenging. I just want to follow up in a way. For me, it's connected. Where are you drawing your inspiration now? You know, when things here are so difficult and so hard, where do you look to, to 
feel that connection either to the history, to the potential, to the spirituality of the land of Israel and the state of Israel? Well, I think in addition to what we've spoken about, this idea of unity is very powerful. And here I would, just to tie it in with what we're talking about, the idea that the eyes and hearts of Jews around the world is toward this place, that their prayers are toward this place, gives me, I think gives many of us, a strong sense of encouragement and hope. And connectedness. You know, I'll just finish with the story. I just met a student today who's joining second semester. And this student came because they were living outside of any formal Jewish community with not any Jews around, really. And after October 7th, they felt alone. There was nobody around them that could share their sadness, their fear, their grieving. And so in a way, the need to be with one's people in a time of difficulty in itself, the tremendous power in that, if we could somehow harness that right? In the positive times, there's a tremendous potential for us to build something together, to turn this whole country, if you will, into one big tabernacle, one big space of divine dwelling. So how about you get to work on that, Leon? What do you think? <laughs> together. Let's do it together. Okay, we'll do with, it together. With everyone at Pardes and everyone around the world. That sounds like a really good plan. So on that note, on behalf of Leon and myself, of course, we reiterate our prayers for peace, for the safe return of the hostages. And God willing, again, by the time you're hearing this, things will be much better. But on that note, I want to thank you, Leon, very much for your time and your wisdom. Thank you, Tzvi. And we want to wish all of you a Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.